From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to big tech, Google, Facebook, there's bipartisan agreement that the landscape is anti-competitive and anti-consumer. If I go on to a particular search engine and search for a year, I should own that data, not the search engine. We've heard pretty clearly and loudly from a wide array of small businesses of the ways in which these large companies have made it very difficult for them to compete. Congressman Buck and Nagus today. Then our new series on pain, about managing pain. Often relief leads to addiction. The morning would start, I would take a couple of Vicodin, and I would take at least four to six of them and put them in the right hand of my suit pants. I would feel around all day, how many do I have left? Thank you for your recent gift during Colorado Public Radio's Fun Drive. Did you know you may be able to make it an even bigger gift at no added cost to you? Thousands of businesses match donations made by their employees. Taking the time to fill out your company's matching gift form adds financial support for the news and music you enjoy. Double your gift to CPR with an employer matching gift. Information is on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Pretty much all we hear from Washington, D.C. these days is the product of bitter political divides. But that's not the whole story. Today, Republican Congressman Ken Buck and his Democratic colleague Jonah Goose, both from Colorado, delve into the projects they're working on together. One would reshape a significant portion of the economy. We spoke Tuesday afternoon, and we began with the crisis in Ukraine. Congressman Buck, Congressman Nagus, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. A question for both of you off the top. If Russia succeeds in annexing portions of Ukraine, as it did Crimea, what concerns do you have about long-term consequences farther to the West into Europe? Congressman Buck, you want to start? Sure. Well, well, first of all, I think uh, what Russia is doing is actually uniting NATO. And I think that one consequence will be that the NATO countries uh, in Europe spend more money on defense. I think they take what Russia is doing very seriously and recognize that it is a um, more of a direct threat than they felt before. And so it has a unifying effect. Um, I also think it will uh, impact uh, if there are economic sanctions, I think it will impact the ability of countries around the world to do business with Russia. And I, I think Russia will feel uh, an economic impact over the certainly the short term and maybe the long term. Congressman Nagus. Uh, look, I, I think, Ryan, the last 48 hours have clearly been very disconcerting. And uh, what President Putin did in terms of his rejection of Ukrainian sovereignty is clearly a flagrant violation of international law. And uh, I think Congressman Buck is right that his actions, uh, not just over the course of the last 24 hours, but really over the last several weeks, uh, have united our NATO allies and, and have brought the democratic countries of Eastern Europe even closer together in opposition to what he has done and continues to do. So I think it's going to be important for all of us, uh, and by that I mean the United States and, of course, our allies, to provide a muscular response in the form of sanctions that ultimately hold Russia accountable and to provide uh, a level of deterrence against further aggression. Uh, I do have concerns 
of the spillover effects to the extent that Russia continues on this current course of conduct in terms of democracy in Europe and, and larger security concerns for the West. All right, let's talk now about some projects that the two of you have been involved in together across the aisle, uh, starting with one that passed last week to put a historic site, the former Amache internment camp in southeast Colorado, under the National Park Service. During World War II, more than 7,000 people of Japanese descent, most of them American citizens, were held at that camp. Uh, There was a ceremony there this past weekend. A Denver man named Derek Okubo was there. Three generations of his family were interned at Amache. Years ago, I remember my father talking about that their dream was one day that the National Park Service would help and take over, that this would become a unit of the National Park Service. And so um, when this happened, went through the boat the other day, uh, they were the first ones I thought of because their dream came true. That bill is one of several that you two have joined forces on through the years. Uh, Congressman Buck, Amache is in your district. What is the practical benefit now of having it come under the control of the Park Service? So first, I want to thank Corey Gardner for making me aware of the situation and really having done a lot of work on that and and also partnering with Congressman Nagoose on this issue. Uh, it is something that I think is important uh, for a number of reasons in southeastern Colorado. First and foremost, it recognizes a dark chapter in American history and really seeks to address that um, and make sure that that never happens again. Um, I think it has some economic advantages in uh, southeastern Colorado. Certainly being a national historic site will put it on the map, so to speak, and uh, folks will visit. And that part of the state is particularly hard hit by uh, drought and and other uh, circumstances that uh, any economic benefit like this will be important. But I think on a national scale, it really is something that we need to uh, make sure that we understand that the primary role of government is to protect our liberties and uh, never take our liberties away. And this is just a really good example of how bad government policy can be used against Americans. So you mentioned the former U.S. Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner. Representative Nagus, you co-sponsored this bill, worked to get it through the House Natural Resources Committee. I don't know, give me an example in day-to-day practice of how the two of you, you and Congressman Buck, worked together on this bill. Well, it's a great example, in my view, of what we can accomplish uh, when we are listening to each other and leading locally. And I think this bill is a testament to that. We introduced the bill uh, about a year ago, just under a year ago, uh, with uh, Representative Buck's help. And in the House, we had more success getting it done on a quicker basis than the United States Senate, which seems to be the case uh, these days. But nonetheless, then worked with our uh, Senate uh, allies, uh, Senator Bennett and Senator Hickenlooper. And of course, as Representative Buck mentioned, uh, this was uh, a matter that uh, Senator Gardner had worked on during his time, both in the Senate and as a representative. It's almost a sort of a relay race, if you will, and different members of the delegation picking up the baton and carrying it to the next stage. In terms of day-to-day, what that meant was a lot of phone calls and conversations on the floor between Ken and I as we tried to figure out the best ways to maneuver this bill to get it onto the House floor, which is, of course, a a difficult exercise in terms of the limited uh, floor time that exists, right? The time that enables you to actually consider a bill on the floor. And then 
uh, when the bill ran into some roadblocks in the Senate. And uh, again, I have to credit Ken uh, for stepping in and helping uh, as uh, he worked to convince some of the Republican senators, uh, one Republican senator in particular, who had some concerns, policy grounds about adding land to the National Park uh, service system. You make reference there to Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who said he didn't want to see the Park Service add anything to its land holdings, even less than a square mile where Amache is. And Representative Buck, uh, I take it from what I heard from Representative Nagus that you reached out to Senator Lee. And uh, what was that conversation like? Well, well, I don't go into the conversation, but I will tell you that Mike uh, has a very uh, legitimate concern in the West of how many Uh, acres, square miles uh, the federal government controls and how necessary it is to consider the ramifications on state and local uh, government and business. And so uh, I understand his concern and and share his concern. Uh, This was a slightly different situation because uh, the property wasn't being condemned by the federal government and it wasn't being uh, really taken. It was hopefully a donation from the uh, town of Grenada to uh, the federal government. And so when Mike was more aware of the big picture of how this would proceed, um, he withdrew his objection on this. I'll note that the two of you are now involved in a similar effort to preserve the Deerfield homestead. Uh, This was a Black community that thrived in the 1910s and 20s, about uh, 30 miles southeast of Greeley. Your co-sponsors on a bill requiring the Department of Interior to study the possibility of it becoming part of the Park Service as well. You know, a lot of members of Congress cross party lines to work on bills that benefit their states. But I wonder, before we talk about you collaborating on tech, big tech and concerns about how big big tech is getting, I want to ask, is it somewhat quaint, maybe even misleading, to focus on these sorts of relationships when democracy feels under siege, false claims about the 2020 election are rampant. There was an attack on the Capitol, partly fueled by that misinformation. Is your relationship, while important, not necessarily the big picture of where the country is headed in terms of partisanship and our sense of things? Representative Nagus, let me have you start. No, I don't think so. Uh, Look, I think they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, Obviously, uh, we both have strong views on the consequential challenges that face us as a state and as a country and are committed to pursuing uh, our ideas and our solutions to addressing those challenges. But I also think it's important for us to find ways to work together proactively uh, and collaboratively. And that's certainly what my constituents expect of of me in the second district is to find ways to move the needle on issues that matter to them. And uh, I'm proud that we've been able to do that on a number of different bills and proposals uh, with Representative Buck. Uh, Him and I served together, of course, on the House Judiciary Committee. We have districts that are adjacent to one another, uh, different communities that we both represent collectively. And so it's, I think, given us the ability to find ways uh, to partner on issues that are important, whether it's honoring our history, uh, like adding Amachi to the National uh, Historic Site Program, or addressing the real serious uh, challenges that exist as a result of concentration in the digital marketplace and some of the tech issues that you mentioned. And we'll talk about tech in just a moment. Representative Buck, to this idea that there may be these bipartisan, transpartisan relationships in Congress, and yet a significant rift uh, in the country 
and uh, between the parties about where the country is headed. Do you want to reflect on that for a bit? Yeah, I think there is a significant risk, but I think um, when you develop personal relationships in, in Washington, D.C., and, and um, I think Joe and, and Ed Perlmutter and Diana DeGed and uh, Jason and uh, Doug Lamborn and, and uh, Lauren Boebert, uh, we all spend more time uh, on the plane some months with each other than we do with our own families. And so we have developed personal relationships and we have met each other's families and we have transcended sort of the just professional uh, on the floor debating issues uh, relationship. And I think it is very important uh, that members of Congress get that personal relationship. We have a a pretty high turnover in Congress. My guess is that um, a third to a half of Congress have been uh, members for less than uh, three terms or, or less than four terms, probably. And the the opportunity to work together on issues really comes about as a result of developing some of these personal relationships and trust. I, I know that when Joe tells me that he's going to go to his leadership and, and he's going to ask them for something and advocate for something, I know that to be true. And I know that I can count on um, on all of the uh, Democrats in the Colorado delegation to uh, work closely on important issues. And so you, you look at this issue of Amachi, it, it's not going to balance the national debt. It's not going to deliver better health care. It's not going to protect the country from foreign evasion better. But uh, it is an important step in terms of building trust and in terms of working together. And there are other many other important issues that uh, we do work closely together across the aisle. Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Weld County and his Democratic colleague Jonah Goose of Boulder County are my guests. They've forged a strong working relationship across the aisle. We should mention that both men face re-election, but they are in relatively safe districts. You have both pressed hard for reform of big tech behemoths like Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook. Indeed, you each serve on the House Judiciary Subcommittee that deals with antitrust issues. In 2020, that committee recommended a package of major reforms that some say could break up these companies or at least dramatically change how they do business. Representative Buck, you've often described yourself as a pro-business Republican, and now you're taking aim at some of the biggest businesses around. Uh, Why? Well, because I am a pro-business Republican, just as I believe my friend Congressman DeGoose is a pro-business or pro-business Democrat. The reality is that we need more competition in the marketplace to promote business. It isn't a matter of allowing monopolies to stamp out competition and to really harm uh, the marketplace and and to fight against a level playing field and, and actually create an unlevel playing field. So I think that members of Congress who are pro-business are the ones who are fighting this monopoly power that these uh, four big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, have uh, in the marketplace. Congressman Nagus, your district includes Boulder, which is a center for tech startups. Uh, I know you've held hearings on these issues. Uh, What are some of the common complaints you hear? Well, you're certainly right. Uh, I represent Boulder and Fort Collins, and uh, they are communities uh, where we have burgeoning startups and just a a thriving tech economy. And yet what we have found, and as you referenced, we had a field hearing not that long ago at my alma mater at CU Law in Boulder uh, that Representative Buck helped us organize. uh, And we've heard 
pretty clearly and loudly from a wide array of small businesses of the ways in which these large companies have made it very difficult for them to compete uh, through anti-competitive behavior that has been well-documented by our committee and essentially the gatekeeper role, each of those big digital platforms that uh, Representative Buck mentioned. The combination, the confluence of those factors makes it very, very difficult for a small business here in Colorado to be able to ultimately compete and thrive and flourish. And of course, our state has long been known and heralded uh, nationwide as, as a hub for innovation. And that certainly applies to the communities that I represent in the second district, but it's becoming more difficult uh, to maintain that in light of the anti-competitive behaviors that we are trying to prevent via the legislation Ken and I have both introduced. So gentlemen, help us paint a picture of the future you'd like to see. I mean, is this a Ma Bell style breakup that you'd like to effectuate? What is the ideal outlook for big tech? Congressman Buck? Sure. I think the ideal goal vision is to make sure that consumers have a variety of choices and that consumers are, uh, for example, in, in charge of their search data. If, if I go on to a particular search engine and uh, search for a year, I should own that data, not the search engine. And um, if we have enough competitors in the marketplace of searches, we should have those companies paying consumers for uh, the opportunity to accumulate that data and sell it to advertisers. Uh, likewise, mm-hmm. if, if I just want to protect my privacy and I don't want my search company selling my data, I should have that opportunity. And that comes about through competition. I'm not looking to break up companies as much as I am, make sure that we allow consumers to create the marketplace that benefits consumers the most. That is to say, consumers, beyond their spending, just in their identities, their behavior online, their personal information, that's been monetized, I think I hear you saying, really without their buy-in. Do you think that's true? It's true. Uh, You know, on page 17, the fourth paragraph down of of some agreement they sign when they uh, sign up for an account, there is a statement in there that that, uh, the search company owns the data. And nobody really goes into that agreement thinking that they have the ability to control that. And, And it's much like, Ryan, it's much like the the cell phone, the mobile phone changes that were made in 1996 in the Telecommunications Act, where an individual owns their cell phone number, owns their contacts, owns their uh, photos, so that when you move from one cell phone company to another, you get to move all of that. And it increases the uh, that, that portability of, of information increases the competition. And, and that's just one of many things, one of many bills that Congressman Nagus and I are, are working hard on to increase competition. And as we wrap up, Congressman Nagus, uh, paint us a picture of what you think the ideal landscape looks like. And I don't know how feasible it is getting there, given the size, the influence, and the money of these companies. Well, I certainly concur with Representative Buck in terms of uh, the way that he described or articulated what the environment would look like, an environment uh, where you have healthy competition in the digital marketplace. So at the end of the day, that's what we're after and what we are trying to create because we know that 
with healthy competition, uh, incredible groundbreaking developments can be made. Uh, and we've seen that in industry after industry. Uh, from my perspective, the laws that we have proposed are fairly straightforward and non-controversial, and they're all bipartisan, uh, whether it's strengthening the tools that uh, exist under current law for our antitrust regulatory agencies like the FTC to ensure that they can take the appropriate steps necessary to safeguard the marketplace, or Representative Buck's bill to enable our state attorneys generals to be able to pursue various actions in a court of law in a given state, as opposed to simply doing it in the state of where a company happens to be incorporated. So I, I think these are common sense proposals. Uh, they deserve to be heard. And Ken and I are both leveraging our uh, positions in terms of uh, me serving in House leadership. And Ken, obviously, is the ranking member of the antitrust subcommittee to do our part to get these bills to the floor for a vote. And I'm optimistic uh, that we will get there, notwithstanding, as you mentioned, the very ardent and vociferous opposition and well-funded opposition, I might add. But at the end of the day, I think that we will, uh, we're going to make some progress. Congressman Buck, I understand that you are limiting your use or not even using Google as your search engine. Where do you turn and how's that working? Well, it works great. And and it's not just Google, it's Amazon, it's other companies. You know, uh, to make a moral judgment that immoral actors in corporate America should be penalized um, consumer by consumer, I think is really important. And so I've made the decision, I'll wait an extra couple of days for a delivery from another company rather than deal with Amazon. And I will use a different search engine rather than dealing with, with Google. Professionally, I have a Facebook account. I don't have one personally, and, and the same with Instagram and, and other uh, social media. Um, I actually like talking to people face to face, and it is important that we, when we make judgments in the marketplace, that we take a moral standard into account. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan. Republican Congressman Ken Buck and U.S. Representative Joe Nagus, a Democrat. Buck represents Colorado's 4th Congressional District, which includes most of the state's eastern plains. Nagus represents the 2nd, centered in Boulder. We recorded the conversation Tuesday afternoon. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with our new series about managing pain, or at least struggling to. How Prescription Painkillers Rocked One Family, My Own. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. RTD has spent billions of taxpayer dollars building train lines over the last 17 years. But some of the cities that wanted rail the most are still waiting. We thought, oh, we could live here and be close to nature and the mountains and ride the train to Denver to work. That never happened. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's new podcast, Ghost Train. Hear why Boulder, Louisville, and Longmont still don't have their train, and whether there's any hope for it in the future. Ghost Train, wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes in trying to relieve pain, we create more of it. That's the story of the opioid crisis. And yet, prescription painkillers remain important tools. Today, we launch a new series, On Pain. It's about how Coloradans manage their pain, or struggle to. We'll also meet researchers who add to our understanding of pain and how to treat it. Let's start with a man named Richard Warner, a former marathon runner, retired businessman, 
and my father. As he's gone down the timeline, he's 78 now, his attempts to eliminate his pain nearly killed him. I want to start with a moment when you were visiting me in Denver and uh, we were driving around doing errands. You were in my passenger seat and apparently you fell asleep. I thought you might have died (laughs) and I was poking you in the passenger seat. And it was the first glimpse that I got into the fact that something might be wrong. Do you remember that? I do. What was going on then? Well, I think that one has to look at the journey rather than an incident. And the journey actually started after a first surgery in 1990, where I was prescribed pain medication for a back surgery. I had been rear-ended by a truck. And I had never taken a pain pill. I was 47 years old. And I took it, and I took it as prescribed for the first 10 days. And then an incident happened where my oldest son decided to visit me. And it was the first experience I had where I wanted to push through and not just be on the couch. So I took, instead of two a day, or two every eight hours, I took four. And it was the first experience I had in being able to push through both physical and psychological pain to the point where the incident you described happened probably 15 years later because my usage was on and off, on and off of pain medication. When you say push through when Nick, my brother, was visiting, what do you mean push through? There is a phenomenon that takes place that I had never experienced with anything else, alcohol or any mind-altering drug whatsoever, where when you are in lethargy or in some form of physical distress, you can take a Vicodin and those symptoms are abated and you can just push through in the sense of getting through the lethargy or the physical pain by taking a pain pill. So this use went on and off and on and off. And take me to that moment when I was in the car with you. Yeah, that moment when you say on and off, let me just remind you and and the listening audience that this started in 1990. I take you to that point of probably 2010, when that incident happened. In that period of time, I had two back surgeries and two artificial hips. So I had four surgeries at that time. And gradiently what happened is that the usage of the pain medication, it went from taking two every four hours to the ultimate where there was a crash and burn in 2016 where I was taking four every four hours or up to 10 to 12 a day. What this means is you had real pain to manage. I mean, these were serious operations over the course of these many years. And that's another good observation, Ryan, in the sense that if pain medication is used responsibly, it's used for a short duration of time. Um, like I said, um, three to five days after a surgery and then weaning off of that pain medication. 
um, because it was sexy, if you will, to be able to push through and work tremendous amount of hours or, you know, as you well know, I've been a gym rat all my life, being able to go to the gym, you know, I was a marathon runner. I could use these drugs to push through. So I did not use them responsibly and it caught up with me, but it took almost 25 years till I hit a bottom. There were times where I could go for a year or two without taking one. And then I take one and it would create that euphoria and that ability to push through. And I would get back on them for a, a few months and then go, no, this isn't good. And I'd stay off of them. So it was periodic until it became regular at the very end. So what happened in the car that day? Like, help me understand what was going on in your body. What was going on in my body was incidental versus what was going on in my mind. I wanted to appear more lifted, more buoyant, and I could do that by just feeling an octave higher with a Vicodin. But it had an effect where it put me into a state of euphoria, but also put me into a state of lethargy. And so what you witnessed in that car was somebody who was tainted with drugs and was not present. So in a way, the lethargy you were trying to escape was actually a side effect of the medication you turned to to escape the lethargy. Exactly. You know, the first Vicodin kind of takes you up, and the second one takes you a little higher, and the third one starts taking you a little down. This is my experience. I don't know what other people's experience is. But I became a drug addict, is what I was. I was addicted to Vicodin, um, Norco. And then as time went on, in order to balance out the highs and the lows, I couldn't sleep at night. So there comes the Ambion, and that's a sleeping drug. And then because of the fact that my mind said I needed it, my body didn't, but my mind became addicted to it. There comes the soma, and soma is a muscle relaxant. And the three of them are deadly. The fact that I'm sitting here and having this conversation with you, um, it's been a little over six years that I've had nothing. And what was very interesting about that is that with the medical detox that I went through, once in a while now I'll take an Advil. Uh, so the pain was very psychological at some point in time where the pain was manufactured so I could actually take the drug in order to have a little bit of a high. That is fascinating to me. And this is part of a series about pain and pain management. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, you manufactured a sense of pain. Uh, and then when you got clean, can I use the term got clean sure. with you? Okay. I don't want to imply you were dirty somehow, but... Um, <laughs> The idea is that you actually weren't in as much pain as you thought you were. That's absolutely perfect. You, you couched it in a perfect analogy where the mind, my mind, I'm only speaking from my experience here, it manufactured the need to take the drug because it manufactured pain. What was interesting is that once, using your term, I got clean, meaning detoxed, there was no pain. 
And like I said, once in a while, um, I take an Advil after a workout at the gym. What was that moment of realization like? That you actually weren't in as much pain as you'd thought you were? It was a little bit humbling in a retrospect going, my God, look what I put my mind, body, and soul through for all those years. Um, thinking that I had distress, painful distress. I do want to add this. At the time that this all started back in 1995, going all the way up to about 2015, the medical community was extremely liberal in writing prescriptions. I remember one time, and this may blow away some of your listeners, that I went to the doctor, told him I was in, in pain, that I'd had two back surgeries, two artificial hips, and I wasn't willing to give up golf, and I wasn't willing to give up the gym. And he said, fine, I'm going to prescribe you some pain medication. You can take up to 12 of these a day. And he wrote a prescription for 12 a day times 30 days is 360 and gave me 90 days with five refills. I went to the pharmacist. They gave me 1,050 pills for the 90-day period, taking 10 a day. And this was Vicodin. And I went, well, it's doctor prescribed. Did you ever take pills when you were standing in front of a mirror, like in your bathroom in the morning? Did you ever look at yourself as you did this? All the time. And I would judge myself, and I would invalidate myself and call myself a coward. And, and here's the worst thing. I promise you, Richard, as I'm looking into the mirror, that this will be the last pill that I take. And yet three or four hours later, my body screamed for another pill. I was addicted. When your body would scream for another pill, what did that feel like? Well, the only way I can really describe it is like creepy collie skin, you know, where nothing in your body just feels right. Everything is just kind of like creepy crawly. Antsy. Antsy. Spilka's dead. Spilka's for sure. And that's like the pill has its life, half-life or what have you, and it wears off and it sets up the obsession to have another one. And if you don't, you go into withdrawal. And who wants to be that uncomfortable when you think that you're using these pills to negate pain? The great lie. So you would presumably have pills on you for when they wore out, right? Did you come up with some ritual about where to keep them? The morning would start. I would take a couple of Vicodin. And I would take at least four to six of them and put them in the right hand of my suit pants. I would feel around all day, how many do I have left? How many do I have left? And I wouldn't even reach into my pocket. I would, you know, feel them on the outside to make sure they were still there. Um, yeah, it was just a heavy addiction, and I needed to have them close to me. I wasn't going to take the bottle and put it in my pants. Did you take them with water? Sometimes, if water was available. If not, what I really like to do is put them under my tongue and let them melt because they would work faster. You used a term earlier. I was a drug addict. I don't know that I've ever heard you say that, Dad. How is it to wear that label or to have worn that label? Well, it's not pretty. From a societal standpoint, from you know a macro standpoint, the word drug addict conjures up in people's mind 
you know, somebody that's putting a needle in their arm uh, somewhere downtown L.A. in a sleeping bag. Um, however, doctors, lawyers, businessmen, what have you, wealthy, and I'm sure within the confines of this audience, there are people that are having the same experience that I am having. And you think you'd have died if you hadn't found sobriety? No, I don't think so. I would have. Before I went into detox, I was um, still at the gym. I was still active, but my soul was sick. Um, my mind was warped. My perceptions were altered. And I believe that if I would have continued without getting detoxed, that my body would have shut down. Remember, I was 70 years old at that time. Um, I'm now 70. I'll be 79 shortly. So uh, I was 73 years old when that started. At 73 years old, when you're still hooked on mind-altering chemicals, there's a tremendous danger that the body will shut down. Your addiction predated, really, as you've said, the height of the opioid crisis. I wonder if as you've watched that unfold, you have seen your own story repeated. Boy, have I ever. Yeah, I have seen it repeated time and time again. In my peer group, by the way, you know, with friends, not just myself, but with many, many friends. And I try to share my story openly if, to the best of my ability um, so people don't have to go through what I went through. What would the man you are now tell yourself a decade ago? That is deep. Ten years ago, I was still using medication. If I were to do a retrospective on it with the information that I have at hand right now, I'd go, if you can, stop. And if you can't, go get medically detoxed. It's pretty straightforward advice, but it's anything but easy, right? I mean, stopping. Oh, I never really thought about the fact that I could ever put down the drug and feel okay. The drug uh, had a progressive effect on my psyche called distortion. I thought I was doing just fine, thank you. Um, and yet, when I look at the wreckage of the past... I find out that I was distorted and I was totally out of mental balance. What, what do you mean by wreckage? Yeah, the wreckage, um, driving. Within a period of three years, I had five automobile accidents where I was at fault. Now, nobody else, nobody got hurt, but it was like taking my car and driving it into the garage. Instead of of driving it into the garage, I drove it into the garage <laughs> and woke up or came to the next morning and looked at my car and go, why is the side of the garage scraped and why do I have this gaping hole in my car? That happened three times. I rear-ended, not at 40 miles an hour, but you know, you're at a stop light and you think the light is green and it's still red, but you're, the car is ahead of you is three inches away and you put on the accelerator. I did that twice. So those are wreckages as far as I'm concerned. And those were in direct 
correlation to the fact that I was not present. I appreciate earlier that you said that pain medication has a very important role for people after surgery and who are, you know, experiencing very real physical pain. You say now you take an Advil or two if you're in discomfort. Are there times where you crave them? Are there times when an Advil doesn't cut it? I mean, you must experience pain, Dad. Um, yes. I have a practice today. And the practice is meditation, prayer, and spiritual reading. And it is a sacred practice where I give my pain to something greater than myself. And the pain usually dissipates. What are the words that you say internally? Do you mind sharing them? Yeah, it's, it's too personal to me to share those words. The pain is reduced, though, when you do that. You know, pain is interesting because there's levels. You know, you can be in level 10, which is the worst possible pain. You can be at level 1. I usually live with two artificial hips, two back surgeries, working out six days a week and playing golf, deep-sea fishing. I live at the three and four pain level. And sometimes if it jumps up to the five or six, an Advil will be appropriate. But living at the four and five level is just my life. And like I said, I have a, I call it a spiritual practice um, with the foundation of prayer and meditation that allows me to extricate myself from the thinking of that pain. And to answer your first question, um, it's okay to live with some level of pain. It's okay to live with some level of pain, especially as you go down the timeline. You know, forget the, the two hip replacements and, and the back surgery, what have you. The body wears out. And, you know, I'm not willing, and it does not call my name because I understand what the consequences are. In my case, the consequences are something I'm not willing to pay. A different kind of pain, in the, the pain of addiction, the pain and suffering that that brings. The pain and suffering of addiction is like no pain I have ever experienced. The psychic pain is the worst. Um, it takes a toll on one's character and one's morality, and I am not willing to go back to that at all. You know, there are folks who are in real pain and who... I witnessed this with a friend who just had surgery, actually, who, because of the country's grappling with opioids in particular, who actually kind of feel dirty even asking for pain medication now, that maybe the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that people are made to feel guilty about their pain and seeking to alleviate it. Have you heard that too? Yes. The pendulum swings both ways for so many things, pain medication certainly being one of them, with the awareness uh, of addiction. I think there's a laudable way of using pain medication for people who are terribly arthritic or people that are really suffering some physical malady, and it enhances their life rather than takes away from their life. You can't put people in a box and go, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. It's an individualized 
journey. I can tell you one thing. The line of demarcation between addiction and non-addiction is very fine. There are people that are using pain medication like I used it that um, are not willing to pay the price of not using it. And their life is a life of quiet desperation. Um, They go through, should I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I, and that Harvard-Oxford debate that nobody ever wins. And there are people that have a small amount of guilt or awareness. I don't think guilt or awareness used on a soft basis is a bad thing. I think it's actually a precursor to not going over that invisible line. Was this experience humbling? Oh, tremendously. And some of your listeners may relate to this. It was the greatest life uh, experience I ever had in the sense that I was so beaten down. And like I said, I was 73 years of age and I thought my life was over. And I was gifted, and I believe it was God's gift that said, there's a different way to live. And um, I kind of threw myself into prayer and meditation and spiritual readings and a different way of life. And here it is a little over six years since I've taken the last pain pill. And I can tell you at the age of 79, my life has never been sweeter. It's um, more authentic, more present, more loving, more kindness, more awareness. Um, There's a wonderful little saying, and that is, be kind to everybody because everybody is fighting some kind of a battle. And uh, I was one that was battling. And now you see that others might be in their battles, too. Absolutely. Dad, thanks for sharing this with me. Just a a little emotional, that's all. Number one, being proud of you. And number two, you know, um, this is a painful subject. And it is the great reality. And like I said, the reason I I got into the batting cage is maybe there's somebody out there that is struggling. And maybe there's somebody out there that can find a solution to that struggle. My father, Richard Warner. And our series On Pain continues next week. Andrea Dukakis has a preview. Researchers believe the brain can generate pain even after an injury has healed. They also believe people can unlearn that pain. So we'll hear from pain experts about how pain can settle into the brain and what they believe can be done to relieve it. That's next week's On Pain. We'll leave you with music from singer-songwriter Claire Dunn of Two Buttes, Colorado. She was just named Female Vocalist of the Year at the Rocky Mountain Country Music Awards. I heard you've been having a hard time Getting over her kind of goodbye Good Love Bad from Claire Dunn's album, In This Kind of Light. She produced the EP in the basement of her family's ranch.
trophy for the Country Music Award is an ornate belt buckle. Normally those go to rodeo champions, which is why Dunn posted to Facebook that she never thought she'd win a buckle without a horse. And that is Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.